Hi, I'm Shannon, pastor at Sturgeon Bay Community Church. I want to thank you for joining us during our study of the book of Mark, where the theme is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God. The whole point of studying this book is so that you can find out more about what the Bible has to say about the person and the work and the message of Jesus Christ. I would encourage you to grab a cup of coffee and a notebook, and let's dive into the book of Mark. And I hope that you could join us sometime soon for a live service where ministry happens in relationships and you can get connected to other brothers and sisters in the faith. See you soon. We are in Mark chapter 11 today. If you've got your Bibles, let's make your way to that direction, Mark chapter 11. Uh, we're going to be picking back up in the book of Mark. There's a central theme in the book of Mark. It goes from the beginning all the way to the end. It's the one thing that John Mark wanted to make sure that you understood by the time you got to the end of the very first gospel that had ever been put to paper. And that central theme of the book of Mark is... You're, you're doing pretty good. I think you're kind of listening around, trying to hear what Jim said. But the central theme... The book of Mark entirely is that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. That is what Mark is trying to make sure everyone understands. So if at any point you're wondering, I wonder why he told that story. I wonder what the theme is. I wonder why he's going into such detail about this. I wonder why he said... It's always so that the reader can understand that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Today, uh, I'm going to leave you with some good information. We're going to be able to engage some things today that should leave you thinking and make an application of, of Mark's gospel. Um, let's, let's catch up, though, to where we are in the text. Jesus and His disciples and apostles have been making their way towards Jerusalem now for several weeks. They had gone way, way, way north up to Caesarea Philippi, probably the farthest any of these people had ever been. By the way, walking the whole way, no, no rides, you know. And uh, uh, as they make their way down, they're going to come on the other side of the Jordan over into Gentile territory and Samaritan territory, and they're sharing the gospel. And Jesus is heading back towards Jerusalem. And He's told the, the, the followers on several occasions that He is going uh, to suffer and die and be resurrected, that this is how His kingdom is coming into, into play. This is how it's going to play out. And He's been telling them this over and over again three distinct times in Mark's gospel. Uh, leading up to this moment. So as they're heading this direction, they all understand where this is supposed to end. It's a messianic kingdom, but not the one that they were uh, expecting. So this is where we are today and where we're going to be picking up. So Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, read uh, exactly like this. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of His disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said, and they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and He sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches uh, that had been cut from the fields. And those who went before them and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And He entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. 
And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. <clears throat> so today, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a flyover of the text. In other words, we're just going to kind of see what it has to say, which we've just done. We've looked at it. We hear what the text says, those 11 verses. And we're going to engage two primary things today. First of all, what did this mean? What did these events mean to the people of Jesus' day? Look, text without context doesn't make any sense. We can read it as Americans and we can go, yeah, that's cool, donkey, Bethpage, Bethany, some other place, Jordan, went to the temple, that's cool, donkey, that's cool. Now we can read it. What we need to do is understand what did it mean to them at that time? What do these events mean? And, and a preview, a lot. <laughs> and then the last thing we have to do is we have to say, what do these events teach us here in the 21st century? It's one thing to hear what it meant to them, but you got to make application today. And remembering the whole time that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that is what Mark wants you to understand. And these 11 verses here are genuinely astonishing. All that's happening here and all the things that we're going to do, pulling the dots together and helping you see what they saw at that point in time. So that's how we're going to engage this uh, today. Jesus is coming right back <clears throat> to the place of controversy and danger. When He had been in Jerusalem before, when He had engaged with the priests and the, and the Sanhedrin and, the, and the, uh, the, the Sadducees before, tension was real. And people were saying, kill Him. we got to kill Him. Who's this guy I think He is? This person who, who would presume to, to do miracles on the Sabbath, how dare you do God's work on the Sabbath? All these things that Jesus had done had created animosity from the establishment. And so Jesus going back into Jerusalem is absolutely going to bring things to fruition, bring them to a head. Now something has to happen. Jesus knows it. The disciples and apostles know it. And friends and neighbors, that's why most of the disciples at this point have fallen away. Most have left. Most have said, I don't like this fact that he's supposed to be Jewish, but he's been in Gentile territory. I don't like the fact that he's supposed to be a rabbi, uh, but he, he continues to eat food and, and glean things on Sundays and heal people, excuse me, on Sabbath, on Saturdays. He continues to do things like this, so clearly he can't be God's man because he's not what I was expecting. And this is what's led us to this point, Jesus going right back into Jerusalem. So um, let's engage some questions that the text ought to bring up. When we read those 11 verses, there's some things that um, if they haven't occurred to you, they probably ought to. So let's think about it. First of all, why does it matter that Jesus, why, look, why does Mark take all this time to mention that Jesus went through Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives? Why? I mean, you don't have a lot of room. It's the shortest of all the Gospels. Why take the time to mention that? If that question occurs to you, the answer probably means something. Next, um, what was an unridden colt doing just tied up to some doorpost? Is that normal? I mean, is that how they did things? Like everybody said, hey, look, a donkey, I'll just leave it sitting here. Is, is that normal? I mean, is your front door or a post is where you normally tie up your donkey? I mean, toll off? Yeah, okay, I figured. All right. What's with all the coats and branches being thrown on the ground? Is that normal? I mean, is this like some kind of gentlemanly attitude? Let's throw my coat down. I mean, what's, what's, why would they do that? Then why is everybody walking around with a branch? Think about it. It's a metropolitan city, Jerusalem. Do you really think people of the first century just walking around? This is my branch. I picked this up on the way into town. What are you doing? Why do they have a branch? Uh, a donkey. Really? I mean, kings are supposed to ride on what? Steed. A steed. Excellent word. I wish I'd thought about it. 
They should be on, this, on, on some mag magnificent animal. Pippi Longstockings gets a zebra. Why is Jesus riding around a donkey, right? So what's the point here? What's going on? There's got to be something about that that's relevant and brings some cogency to this whole chapter. What is it? Why does he do that? And then lastly, what does Hosanna mean? Um, and what on earth possessed people to be standing around shouting it? Hosanna, Hosanna, why is that the word that came to their mind and what's it mean? These are questions that ought to occur to you. Would you agree? Let's find out because if we're going to get our mind in the first century mind and if Nick's going to walk away from here today going, I got it, what I got to do is make sure you're hearing what they heard and seeing what they heard. Then, then and only then can we come back and say, oh, the message we need to hear today in 21st century Surgeon Bay, Wisconsin is this. So that's what we need to get to in the text today. And hopefully that's exactly what we'll, we'll achieve. First of all, Bethany and Bethphage or Bethpage. I'll say it both ways. Don't wig out. It's just, you can say it either way. It doesn't really matter. Um, both of these places were east of the city of Jerusalem. Imagine, if you will, they are kind of the bedroom communities or suburbs of Jerusalem. Bethany and Bethpage are not some long, all-day walk distance from Jerusalem. They're less than a mile. They're on the other side of the valley there from the Kidron over on the other side of the Mount of Olives to the east side. Uh, that, that's where they were. Now, interesting. When David was exiled from Jerusalem by Saul and by his followers, the route that David took was to the east. He went to the other side of the Jordan, and that's where he found himself in exile. And when David came back into the city, returning as king, returning to the place that he belonged, David came from Bethpage and Bethany into the city of Jerusalem. He crossed the Jordan River from Bethany beyond the Jordan, which is Bethany to the, to the east, and he came across, and that was the path he followed into Jerusalem. This is the path that Jesus is going to follow. He's going to follow the same path as David, coming across those two cities into Jerusalem. To people of his day, seeing a famous rabbinic messianic figure who everybody's talking about, of whom has been said he could be the Messiah. If he's coming that direction, nobody in his day and age was missing the relevance of the fact that he was following David's route into the city. Not only that, uh, Jesus is going to pass through Jericho, coming from Bethany beyond the Jordan. He's going to follow the very path that Joshua and the children of Israel followed when they were coming to take the promised land, what God had promised. As they came, Joshua came that direction as well. Same name, Jesus and Joshua. Same name in the Hebrew, it's Yeshua. The same name, the same path, the same image. God's deliverance, God's people, God's man is coming to God's place where he belongs. If you put them in a line and you start to think about these cities and the significance that they have, Jesus is making everybody's minds go to one singular message. Let's go back a little bit farther. There's a man who's called to take up all that he has from Ur of the Chaldeans and go to the land that God will show him. His name is Abram. Now, Abram, mom, did you get that wrong? Man, it's never happened. <laughs> Holy cow. So as Abraham, it's right, it's Abraham, but as, as Abram comes, he's going to have his son Isaac. And Isaac, God's going to tell him to go to the top of Mount Moriah, put your child on the altar, and you're going to sacrifice him to me. Now God gives Abram this command. It's Abraham, but then it gives him this command uh, to sacrifice his son. Now, 
God was telling Abraham to do something that was common to the gods of that era, the, the pagan gods that people were worshiping. So God was communicating with Abraham in a message, in a, in a language, in a style that Abraham would have understood. He says, take your son to this mountain, and when you get up on that mountain, you're going to make a sacrifice. We all know the story. He puts Isaac on the altar, and as he raises the knife to, to kill his only son in, in order to do what God has told him, an act of complete obedience, sacrificing his son because, and at that moment, God says, stop. And God provides a sacrifice. And on that place, on the top of Mount Moriah, would later be the temple. And at that place would be the Holy of Holies, where God would allow sacrifices to be made uh, for the justification, for the atonement of His people. So that by submitting themselves under the blood of that Lamb, they would find forgiveness. That's what the Temple Mount was. And you always went up to the Temple Mount. As Jesus is coming into town, He's coming up to that Temple Mount. Don't think that the imagery was lost on the people of Jesus' time. Okay, Now, that's the first step. We just got started. Bethany and Bethpage, why was He coming through there? Fulfilling prophecy, settling the imagery, making sure everybody was seeing the picture of who He is, the Messiah, the Son of God, the sacrifice. Next, Bethphage or Bethpage. Um, it has a name, Bethpage, and what it means is, in its original language, the house of unripe figs. Right? Are you astonished? No. Well, let's find out why it mattered to them. Why do you name a city the house of unripe figs? That doesn't make any sense. That's strange. Well, let's see why. You got to go back to the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, we have two particular characters. They're in the Garden of Eden. And you know the story in, in, in the Garden of Eden, God puts the man and the woman there and He says, you may eat of all the fruit, all the trees of the garden, but of the one you shall not eat or you will surely die. You shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? You guys still with me this morning? Okay, or you're wondering what I'm, what I'm talking about. Here we go. In Genesis chapter 3, Eve is deceived by the serpent. She sees that the, the fruit is good to eat. Good to eat can also be translated ripe, okay? Because if you go up to a tree and the fruit is not ripe and you bite into it, it tastes bitter, awful, nasty, don't want to eat that. But if it's good to eat, it's ripe, it's ready to go, delicious. The tree that was in the garden was not an apple tree, ladies and gentlemen, friends and neighbors. This is, this is the ancient Near East, okay? It's not China. There's no apples in this area of the country. There are figs in this area of the country. The ancient tradition was very clear on this. This idea of the apple is a very Western post-1600 idea. Prior to that, what, I'm sorry, post-1300, I'll get my dates right one of these days. But when, when they go, the, the tradition all the way up until those times had been that it was a fig tree. As a matter of fact, when Adam and Eve are caught in their sin, what do they sew together to make clothes for themselves? Don't you mean apple leaves? No, they tie together fig leaves and they clothe themselves in the very knowledge and understanding that they've just received from this tree, which has made them aware of the fact they naked and made them aware of the fact that now they're dying and made them aware of the fact they have dishonored God and they have fallen into sin. And so they clothe themselves in that very thing. Interesting. Hmm. Beth Page, the house of unripe figs. Here's what it is. Outside the city of Jerusalem is this city, this town. And in this town is the idea there's no temptation here. There's no sin 
here. That's what it means. Unripe figs means there's nothing there that would be good to eat that would tempt you. So Bethphage itself was an austere and a holy and ostensibly a sinless place. That's where it gets its name. So no temptation, unripe figs, that's the place it was. Now, by the way, it's not the Garden of Eden. Somebody asked me at the end of last service, are you saying that Bethphage was the Garden of Eden? Uh, no, I'm saying that there was imagery that they used there. Okay, now that you understand that, here comes the step that's really fascinating. Why did Jesus go through Bethpage? Why does it matter? Oh, this is great. Here's your map to take a look at it. You got Bethany right there on the Jordan. On the other side is Bethany beyond the Jordan. Uh, you cross there, you go through Jericho up to Bethpage, and then you're going to come across into the temple. Jesus goes through that city because prophecy had said that that's where the Messiah would come from. He would come through Bethphage from the Mount of Olives. The, the Messiah would make his approach to Jerusalem. But here's what's great about Bethpage you want to know. The Sanhedrin, the high court of, of Israel, the supreme court of Israel, the ones that made all the decisions of the law, was located in Bethpage. That's where their uh, court was. Now, they met there, they made decisions there, they deliberated there, they went through the law there, they made all the major decisions that the Israelites would be uh, subjected to. Things like festivals enacted by the Sanhedrin there at their palace, at their court in Bethpage. Rates and currency are approved there in Bethpage. In particular, the prices for temple currency and sacrificial animals. The light's coming on, starting to make a little bit more sense here. Renderings on the Talmud, the law, and all death sentences were debated and finalized here at Bethpage, at the court there, before the Sanhedrin would make their way into the temple to the court of hewn stones, which would be the public forum of the Sanhedrin. So imagine the Supreme Court deliberates here and then makes their decisions here. That's kind of how the Sanhedrin works. And the Sanhedrin would do all of their deliberating and debating and studying, all that sort of thing. They would hear cases. They would make decisions in Bethpage. Why? It was a walled city that was considered a place without temptation where you could not sin because there was no temptation there. And this is where the Sanhedrin met. And this is where Jesus is going to come through. What does Jesus do? We know later on when He gets to the temple, what's He judge him for? Oh, this is to be my Father's house of worship, but you've made it a den of thieves. Ooh, how could He say that? Well, He just came through Bethpage where all of those decisions are made. There's a continuity of all these things that are happening at that moment. So if you can start to put together some of the pieces, He's going to come following the path of David, following the path of Joshua, He's going to come that direction. He's going to come into Jerusalem just like the Messiah would do. He's going to come through the place where there is no sin, okay? Obviously taking upon himself the identity of sinless, and he's going to be making his way towards Jerusalem from that point. So this is where we've gotten to so far in the midst of this. Now let's think about some of those other questions that we were engaging. Uh, what was an unridden cult doing tied up at some post? Well, it looks like this. The city of Bethpage is the place where the Messiah would come from. All of the prophecies talking about that Messiah are really clear about what that Messiah is going to do and how he's going to enter into the city. Here's some of them. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 prophesied that Israel would adore their king as he rode on an unridden donkey colt. 
coming into the city. This king would be legitimate, victorious, and humble when he rode into the city. The sacred and kingly steed would be one no other person had or was qualified to ride into the city. These were the instructions of the Mishnah. This cult, understand what we're talking here, there's definite parallels, unridden, sinless, pure, virgin. All of these ideas are coming together at this moment. And tradition held that the true Messiah would appear at Passover and claim just as, uh, came in just as the cult and would announce the fact that the Messiah had arrived. We track in so far. So there's several dots are really connecting here at this point. Here's where it starts to really become interesting. It's Passover. It is exactly 1,000 years to the day from when Solomon came in uh, to, to power and, and, and entered into Jerusalem and was coronated 1,000 years ago to the day to Jesus' arrival. That illustration was very clear. It's also clear uh, that as Jesus is coming into town on this particular animal, this is an animal that would signify the Messiah's arrival. Why was it there? Because in the city of Bethpage, it had become tradition to take a pure, unridden colt and tie it to a particular door that had particular significance that the, when the Messiah arrives someday, he will sit on the colt here and ride into the city, and we will know that God's deliverer has arrived. And every year, for, for hundreds of years there at Bethpage, a pure, unridden colt had been brought in and symbolically put at that particular door to represent that the Messiah would come through here one day. And when Jesus told James and John, or whichever apostles it may have been, to go in and find that colt, they knew exactly what he was saying. And the people in Bethpage knew exactly what this imagery meant. Because the son of David, coming from the east, across the Mount of Olives, sinless, would enter into the city of Jerusalem and the Messiah would have arrived. And just as Zechariah had said, he would ride on the back of an unridden colt. An animal that in their day was a beast of burden, representing that the king bears the great burdens of his nation, and that's the, what leaders do. They carry that weight. And that's why a beast of burden, unridden, that nobody else was worthy, was symbolized by that donkey colt that would be tied up there at that door in Bethpage. You start to see how remarkable this is? Can, can I spoil it for you? Okay. There's no way that the people of Jesus' day missed the message that this is the Messiah, the Son of God. There's no way that that message wasn't just exploding into their faces. All this imagery, all these things being pulled together were expressing who Jesus was. And we're not even done yet because the even more exciting things start to be this. When Jesus is going to enter into the city of Jerusalem, He's going to enter on Passover. So remember that other question we were asking, what's the deal um, with all these coats and branches being thrown on the ground. Do people just walk around with branches in the ancient world? What's the story? Well, this day is Passover. And on Passover, every single year, the people of Israel would remember when God delivered them from Egypt. And part of that is that they are going to come with a sinless, spotless lamb, a first-year lamb that is completely pure and clean. And that lamb is going to represent their sacrifice to God recognizing that God would one day make a final sacrifice that would atone for all the sins of people and put us back in right relationship with God. But through the Lamb, the blood of the Lamb, comes salvation 
for people. Remember? This is what we symbolize and what we do when we take the Lord's Supper, that Jesus is that lamb. It's His perfect body and His perfect blood that are given for us. And so at Passover each and every year, the preparation includes these little lambs that have been raised all across the ancient Near East by ranchers, farmers, whatever you want to call them, herdsmen, who raise these perfect lambs. You know where most of the lambs come from, the best lambs of all? Bethlehem. In Bethlehem, special shepherds keep watch over flocks, you know, by night. And they keep watch over these flocks and they raise lambs that are designated specifically to stay clean, to stay pure, to be part of the Paschal Lamb sacrifice in Jerusalem. And what people would do is they would commission these particular herdsmen or farmers, ranchers, um, to raise a lamb for them. And in the first service, I use Matt as our example, so Britt will use you this time too. So let's say that Matt and Britt have decided they're good Jewish people, they're going to be uh, preparing their lamb, and so they hire a rancher, uh, we'll make it Brian and Dina, and uh, sheep farmers today. Yay, there you go. So they're raising sheep, and, and they raise perfect little lambs at a premium, and they get them ready for the Passover. And around the neck of that lamb, uh, as it's taken to the city of Bethpage to be confirmed as a pure, spotless, worthy sacrifice by the Sanhedrin court by the people who worked for that court. All these lambs would make their way to Bethpage on the other side of Bethany in the Mount of Olives, and Brian and Dina would deliver the lamb with the name around the neck of the particular family that had commissioned that lamb. Clean, spotless, and in perfect shape. At Bethpage, they would be prepared to make the procession from Bethpage into the city of Jerusalem through the gate that was known as the Sheep's Gate, or sometimes called the Shepherd's Gate. And so along this path, these lambs would go, and the people would gather for the entrance of the lambs. Behold the lambs. They would be coming in, and people would get excited, and they would get ready, and they would lie in the road that these lambs are going to travel with branches so that the little clean baba lambs are walking along and they're not getting muddy or dirty or any of that filth from the road. And they would come in through the shepherd's gate. And as they came in through the sheep or the shepherd's gate, they would throw things on the ground to make sure the lamb stayed pure and they would celebrate when they saw their lamb coming. So Matt and Britt are sitting there and they're waiting and they're waiting and there comes our lamb, yay! And they would celebrate. And if it looked like there was dirt about to get on their lamb, immediately Britt would yank the jacket off Matt's back and throw it on the ground right there so that little baba doesn't walk in the dirt. And this is exactly what happens. But it also is going to draw their minds back as people to a prophecy, to a thing that had happened. In 2 Kings 9, 12 to 13, King Jeru is entering into the city and he's being hailed as king. And as he's coming into the city, people are celebrating his arrival. And what they do is they throw branches, uh, palm branches, and they throw their coats on the ground so the ground is perfect because their king is coming. And they want to make sure their king, Jeru, who is there to save the city, to be the salvation, the redemption of the Israelite people. At that time, as Jeru rides in the city, he rides on perfect ground, never to be spoiled because that's how you treat a king. And at this moment in time, Jesus on a donkey, fulfilling prophecy of Zechariah, is riding through the shepherd's gate. On the day before Passover, before the lambs, coming from the city of unripe figs. And people are going to see him coming. All this imagery is going to flood to their mind. And what they're throwing on the ground are the branches they already had ready and the coats to make way for their king, their Messiah, their redemption, the sacrifice that will take away the sins of the world. The Messiah has come. Hosanna means God help us. He's here celebrating that. A thousand years to the day after Solomon, on the day before Passover, the Lamb of God would arrive in the city. And the people are going berserk. 
They are so excited because that's what all of this means. Now that we've talked all of that, let's take one more look at Hosanna. Praise God and His Messiah, we are saved. That's what Hosanna means. What's the theme of Mark? Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. What in the world did Mark take these 11 verses to show you? How prophecy had been radically, fantastically fulfilled in Jesus. All of these predictions are coming true at this place for those Passover crowds. This is a moment for the ages. This is the entrance of the Messiah. Now, let's go back. Let's read Mark 11, verses 1 through 11, one more time. And let's hear this with the things that we've just tied together and brought together so you can see what Mark's people at his time are seeing so that we can get ready to make application for us today. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus has said, and they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before them and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve and returned the colt, just like he said. You get it? You see why this matters? You see what's going on at this moment? People are recognizing He's Messiah. They're recognizing He's the one they've been waiting for. They're recognizing that prophecy has been fulfilled. They can see Him and they can see that this is the truth that they had anticipated. All these things they have been hearing as good Jewish children from their youngest years all the way to now are being fulfilled and all these prophecies are coming together. Here's the chatter in the street. Hey, hey. You remember in, I think it was 2 Kings, when Jeru came into the city and the others were like, I've heard that story. Yeah, Jeru came in and they threw their coats down. Oh my gosh, that's remarkable. We were throwing coats down. Yeah. Did you hear about that he came in through Bethpage and he had come across from the, from the valley? He had come over the Mount of Olives from which your Redeemer comes. Yeah, the Messiah was going to come from the Mount of Olives. Holy cow, he did that too. Hey, remember remember it, it was on Passover day and the lambs were coming. By the way, did you see your lamb? No, I was kind of caught up in the whole Jesus thing. And this discussion's going on all through Jerusalem. Folks, it's the headline everywhere. So what? I mean, honestly, it's the 21st century. Who cares about sheep, right? It's the 21st century. What do we care about limbs? I mean, seriously, it, it, the city of Jerusalem is a totally different city now. The gate's not even there anymore. Who, who cares? The question is, so what? And that's the right question because, see, where we got to go with this, it happened. It meant something to them. But what's it mean to us? Because we're not first century Jewish people. So what do we do with this? What do we look back and say, Mark, through the power and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, wanted to make sure that this was recorded and remembered? And look, folks, 
This is one of the only stories, one of the only accounts that all four Gospels tell and make sure that you hear. And it's almost identical in all four. There's a little bits of extra information here because they were different people and they were writing to different continents and different crowds. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all want to make sure that you hear about this event because it helps understand who the Messiah is and what you've got to do with it. Now, you have heard the truth. Scripture says, <coughs> those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Those who have eyes to see, let them see. You have heard... You have seen, you have read, these things have been made clear to you as they would have been made to the first century Jews who were astonished at what all was happening. What's it mean? Here's the two things that I hope uh, that you can take with you and start to understand. So first of all, people in Jesus' day, just like our day today, kind of like this theory of just getting their ticket punched, just get their fire insurance card. You've heard it said like this, oh, I believe in God. Right? Have you ever heard that said? Have you ever talked to somebody and you're like, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian, go to church. Oh, yeah, yeah, I believe in God. Oh, good for you. Scripture says that even the demons believe and they tremble, tremble, because they believe in God too. Look, believing in God is at a minimum. Listen, throughout creation, His handiwork is there, made plain so that people are without excuse. Those are Paul's words, paraphrased, of course. Paul said that God's handiwork is all around us. Listen, folks, we have the ability today to look at the very fingerprint of God in DNA. We have the ability to look at the laws of physics and see an orderly, structured universe. And as far as our minds can imagine, as far as our minds can see, the laws of light and physics remain consistent and constant and point back to a beautiful plan by our Creator God who said, this is me. Get to know me. Look at the beauty of life on earth. or look, look at the consistency of life on earth. Look at the laws that are always in motion. Look at the wonderful complexity that works beautifully because of a divine creator. But mankind, because we're arrogant, look at creation around us and say, well, it's all a cosmic accident. You see, what happened was a long time ago, let's say billions of years, uh, there was an accident that led to another accident. And through a series of other accidents, simplicity became incredible complexity because nature always demonstrates that, right? And through this, somehow, accidentally, there was a, a primordial mud somewhere that had just the right amount of elements and a lightning bolt came down and hit it. And suddenly there were monkeys with Macintosh computers. It was astonishing. Just believe us. Just give it enough time and it'll happen. This absurd narrative was developed really in the 1700s and 1800s, beginning with Lyle and Hutton and the concept of the uniform theory in order to do away with anything that had to do with God or a divine being. Can I settle the, the argument for you? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay. Can we do that one more time? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And through the Word, everything that was made, that was made. And without the Word, nothing was made that you can look at and see today. All of creation points to Creator God, to whom we should give all glory and honor. The fact that you believe in God, a moron would see that. Only the deepest of fools says in his heart that there is no God. So I'm glad when people say, I believe in God. Super, the demons believe in God too, and they tremble. 
But believing in a lifeboat does not get you saved. Imagine, if you will, we're on a giant ocean liner, okay? And we're going down. And it's in the middle of the middle of the ocean, okay? And the water is frigid. It's a Titanic situation. Do your Leonardo DiCaprio or whatever. So you're riding on the ship. It's going down. You know you're going to die. And somebody says there's a lifeboat. And you go, you know, there sure is. I've always wondered there might be a lifeboat. You know what? I believe now. I can see it. That is a beautiful lifeboat. All orangey and looks warm. Looks like it's got supplies in it and a big open door. Looks like it's even got a heater going. That's a beautiful lifeboat. Is a lifeboat going to save you just because you believe in it? See, now you're getting uncomfortable. <laughs> you're like, oh, I don't think I like where this is going. Good. So the idea that you believe in a lifeboat does not save life goat. That's awesome. The fact that you believe in a lifeboat does not save you. The fact that you place your faith in the lifeboat Take an action and trust the lifeboat for your life. Make it what you place your hope in, your eternity, your life in that lifeboat. That's the step of faith that leads to salvation. For by grace are you saved through, and this not of yourselves. Now, you have to act on faith because faith without works has no life in it, or dead, your translation may say. Faith without works is dead. So you can't just believe there's a God and think somehow you got your ticket punched and you're good to go. The people of ancient Jerusalem saw the prophecies being fulfilled. They saw that Jesus fulfilled all of them astonishingly. But they didn't place their faith and trust in Jesus. They just identified that, oh yeah, He sure enough is the fulfillment of all those prophecies. That's cool. Next, what's for dinner? And they didn't place faith in Him. So faith without that step, without getting in the lifeboat, means He's not Lord. Listen, He's not Savior if He's not Lord. Make sure you got that. He's not Savior if He's not Lord, right? So you can believe there's a God. That's cool. That doesn't save you. Placing your faith in Jesus Christ, surrendering heart and life and soul to Jesus Christ, is where we come under the justification that He provides. He becomes our atonement. And we're justified before God because of Jesus Christ. That all who believe in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. You have to place your faith in Jesus, not just believe that He existed. So for the people of ancient Jerusalem on this day would be saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And 48 hours later, most of them are screaming, crucifying, crucifying, crucifying. He said he's the Messiah, but he didn't bring what I wanted. Yeah, I believe in God, but he's not doing what I want. I want a bigger Lexus. I want a fancier house. I don't want to get sick. I don't want to have to look around and see terrible things happening in the world and realize that it's the fallen nature of man and not because of God. And so we look around and we cast our fingers up and we judge God and we point at God with our arrogant little bony adolescent fingers and go, if you're real, why does bad stuff happen to good people? If you're real, how come I don't get what I want? So you believe in God but he's definitely not Lord. And you see where this is a breakdown. Day one, we say, Hosanna, I believe in God. And day two, we say, I didn't get what I wanted from you. Crucify him. What's next? Our consumer mentality is the same as the people of ancient Israel. It's the same reaction. Now that you've seen 
And now that you've heard, what will you do with the truth that's been laid out in front of you? That's the choice you have to make, and it's the choice they had to make. Is Jesus the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world, and will you make Him Lord of your life? Listen, lordship means this. It means that you submit yourself to the leadership of another, that that Lord's values become your values, and you make your decisions and your choices based upon the Lord's will, the King's will. The kingdom of heaven is like Get it? What were all these parables Jesus shared? The kingdom of heaven is like. If he's the Lord, his way becomes your way. And here's the revelation. If his way is not your way, it doesn't matter that you believe he exists. Nice lifeboat, eh? But until you go get in it, place your faith in it, and let it be the Lord over you, you're not saved. You're just playing a fool's game. And that ticket isn't getting you in any pearly gates. That's the message. That's what you got to do with it. But next, can you advance one slide for me, Dave? My computer shut down over here. The next thing we have to look at as we read through these passages and what we've explored today is the insurmountable evidence for the fact that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. Has it occurred to you recently that the Bible was written across three different continents, three different languages, over several thousand years, and there's 66 different books included in there. Has that ever struck you as a pretty fantastic volume? The Bible's not necessarily just one book. It's a collection of 66 books, multiple authors, men and women, from different kingdoms and days and ages, and writing at different points in history and from three different continents. And as they're doing this, an astonishing thing happens. The book is without flaw. What? I mean, you can't go without flaw between USA Today, the, the New York Post, and, 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 and the New York Times. They can't even agree all the time. And they're all right there in the day of information technology. In the ancient world, all these books are compiled. And the more we look into it and the more we understand, the more the Bible completely agrees with itself. The, the more we understand and study, the more it fulfills its own prophecies and its own teachings. And it's, the continuity is astonishing. Matter of fact, the continuity is impossible. Only God could have done that, which is why Paul said all Scripture is God-breathed and is there for, for instruction and righteousness and for reproof so that the man of God is ready, capable, equipped for every good work. Scripture is how we interpret and understand Scripture. Do you think it's even plausible? Think, think. Is it even plausible? Let's be skeptic Americans. Is it even plausible that in his act, in Mark 1, or Mark 11, 1 through 11, that Jesus, a Middle Eastern guy from a humble upbringing in Galilee, Nazareth, a tradesman, could have understood and fulfilled all of those prophecies in exactly that way, with that kind of an understanding, that completely, all at once, at that time, and actually been allowed to and make his way into the city of Jerusalem with that kind of completeness. Come on. That's just beyond the pale. There's no way that one mortal person could have understood it that completely and completed all those things that perfectly at exactly that time, at exactly that place. Jesus 
is the Messiah, the Son of God. It's, there's no getting around it. It's insurmountable. You can't even begin to run enough algorithms to where you could have made all that up and make it happen at exactly that time. Really, the thousandth anniversary of Solomon? Really, the cult? Really, the Hosanna? Really, the branches are ready? Really, that gate? Really, that path? Really, that time? Really, all that that led up to it? This is God. This is God's prophecy coming together. And as we look at that today, friends, what I hope is you're realizing no mere man could have done this. No mere man could have orchestrated this. This is the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us, the one who created it all and came to redeem it all and to fulfill it all at that moment so that today, New Year's Eve, 2017, we can gather here today and say, Hosanna, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. So we can gather here today and recognize, next one, that we have a question to deal with. And that's that all of this evidence demands a decision. That's you, okay? This is me pointing to you, to me. All of this demands a decision on your part. Will Jesus be Lord of your life? And subsequently, Savior. Or is Jesus calling you as Savior and friend, asking you, let me be Lord, live the way that I've instructed? But it's time to make a decision. So as our worship team comes up, here's what I would like us to do. I would like you to bow your heads, to close your eyes, and just get before God right now, okay? Don't worry about the folks around you. Don't worry about the worship team walking up here. You've seen them before. You'll see them again. Nothing terribly exciting right this moment. I want you to get before God with heads bowed, with eyes closed, Let's ask some of these questions. God, have I genuinely allowed you to be Lord over my life and my decisions and my values? God, am I approaching you with faith like a child? Lord, am I approaching you recognizing that you are the Messiah, the Son of God? That evidence demands a decision on my part. Belief leads to surrender. Faith comes by hearing. Today you have heard the Word of God. You have seen the Word of God. But what will you do with that knowledge now? God, as we've looked at your word today, that we've gotten into the mind of the ancient people and seen what was going on there and seen what John Mark wanted to make sure we understood. Lord, we are impressed with the fact that you came not to conquer with force as an earthly king, but you came with love and grace and mercy and humility to be a sacrifice to redeem us to you. Just as Abraham on that mount so many generations before had been promised, you, God, provided the sacrifice that we need as people so that we can have peace with God. 
Jesus, you didn't come with an army. You didn't come in splendor, but you came in humility and lowliness as a servant who washes the feet of his apostles, who lived among commoners and spoke a common language. God, you came not as a conqueror of nations, but you came to fill the hearts and the minds of people to bring them to peace with God. And Lord, as your followers, we're asked to exhibit exactly those same qualities, that the world would look to us and see the true king living and reigning and triumphant in us, God, that, that we would be filled with, with the love and the joy and the peace and the patience and the, the long-suffering, the gentleness, the humility that you demonstrated. And God, that's when your lordship really has its effect in our lives. Lord, it's impossible to think that today in this room that there's not some of us who've allowed other things to reign in our hearts. That at least in some way, Jesus, other things have taken the position of preeminence and lordship in our hearts and minds. What a great time today on New Year's Eve to be able to say as we step forward, as we go forward, we go forward with Jesus as Lord. We go forward with our Savior genuinely being on the throne of our values and our decisions and our hearts and our want-tos. God, I just pray that, that on this day, you are King. You are Messiah. And that we can simply celebrate by saying, God, help us. God, take over. Blessed are you who come in the name of the Lord that we can be at peace with God. Lord, let us embrace that this year. And maybe the people around us who see us, who experience us on a daily basis, may they look to us and say, that's what it is to really follow Jesus, not just to believe in God. So Lord, this is our prayer before you as your people, as your children, as your sheep, thanking you for the fact that you have given us the ability to be called sons and daughters, to be at peace with God. May we surrender heart and life to you. These things we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Amen.